Welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I am not Gareth Mulvenna, nor am I Sam McElwain. I'm Tony Groves, the producer of the Shrapnel Podcast, and I'm, I'm just going to take a couple of seconds to explain to you what you're about to hear. On Thursday the 20th of July in the Sugar Club in Dublin, uh, Sam McElwain and Emma D'Souza joined myself on stage to have a conversation about all things Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland politics, loyalism, unionism, nationalism, education, healthcare, housing, where do we stand in relation to a border poll or potential for a border poll? And uh, it was a fantastic evening. Uh, it was a really, really, really enlightening conversation in front of a very engaged audience. So this is the first part of that conversation now. Part two, which was a conversation with Roman and Owen, the journalists behind the ditch, is available now on the Patreon feed. And I've just posted part three, which was a very special conversation with whistleblower, the Department of Health whistleblower, Shane Core. You'd know him as the guy who blew the whistle on what was happening around nursing home charges for the elderly and how the state were monitoring families with autistic children. It was amazing to be joined by Shane on stage. And at the end, there was a Q&A with our audience and all the panellists. So well worth listening to. And I'm going to plug it all available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. The price of a fancy cup of coffee and maybe a scone. And we get to keep having conversations like the one you're about to hear now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Enjoy the pod. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we started on a downer, but um, and now it's only going to get worse. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to someone. Uh, just uh, I'm going to name in shame. Um, Jim Sheridan said to me, "What are you kicking off with?" I said, "Our good loyalist friend." A loyal? Yeah, what? <laughs> we are very, 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 very privileged to work with so many great people, um, and because of someone else. In, uh, we were, I think it was interviewing Brian Smith from the Green Party in the North said to me, you need to talk to Sam. I said, who's Sam? He said, oh, he's just this, um, lefty loyalist. I said, a what? <laughs> he said, he said, honestly, he's a lefty loyalist. I said, okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, turned out Brian, for once, uh, you get advice often, uh, from people and he wasn't all wrong. And, and all the way through that process, we've always been very fortunate to have great contributors and probably people who know actually, why do I even give these fellows the time other than the bit of crack? And that person is an unbelievable tireless campaigner, advocate for the Good Friday Agreement to actually mean something. And someone who has probably got more appearances in the tortoise shack than Martin McMahon at this stage, because you all know he barely shows up half the time. Um, Emma D'Souza and we're going to have Emma and Sam now have a conversation so thank you so much and if you put your put your hands together to welcome Emma D'Souza from Loss of Impl- Implementation and, and Sam McElwain from Shrapnel Podcast <laughs> Sam kick us off what would you like to know first um, the, the reality is we are now at a touch Point where, at a point where you've said so often that, you know, we need to see changes in health, housing, healthcare, what's happening in, in the installment. And all of it come, keeps coming back to this idea where members of your community say the agreement is dead. 
And Emma's going to tell you that the agreement was never honoured. So tell us, Sam, first of all, who's right? We're both right. I mean, Emma's right in the fact that it's never been honoured. Um, it's never been fulfilled and it's never, it's never been exploited to its full potential. Um, so definitely not wrong in that context. But being in the community that I'm in and talking to the guys there, the, the hope that they had in the Good Friday Agreement is gone. Um, a lot of them, some of them didn't vote for it, obviously. Some did it in the hope that it would develop into something else, and, and others did it with all their heart and all their soul. And there's quite a few put their personal and political collateral into it. Um, and I was part of the campaign to make sure we got it over the line within that community, working with the likes of uh, Billy Hutchison and David Irvine in a very small capacity. Um, but we, we toured social clubs and community halls up and down the country, convincing people that the way forward was the Good Friday Agreement, was to give this a chance, that we had a chance to stop the killing, we had a chance chance to stop making kids fatherless, um, watching mothers cry as their sons are carted off to jail um, and filling holes in Roseland Cemetery. So we did the, we did the groundwork. And then people like Davy and Billy and others were forgotten about. They were pushed to the side when big party politics came into it. And the smaller parties, including the Women's Coalition, um, were pushed to the side. And those communities that had that voice lost that voice. Uh, and then they depended on the other parties um, to fill that gap. And it's never really been done. So it's never been exploited enough to make it worthwhile. And I think Emma will be off the line that it's still there and we still should use it. And I'm not against that. If, if it can't be used for what it's meant to be used for, then that's it. But I can tell you now that talking to the people that I talk to, there's not a lot of belief there at the moment. Okay, well, I would say, what else is there if you don't have the Good Friday Agreement? You know, there is a... There's a, there is a cohort that say, well, the Good Friday Agreement is dead or the Good Friday Agreement isn't going to work. But I ask, what is the alternative to the Good Friday Agreement? And we haven't even been able to make the Good Friday Agreement a success. And it does go back to implementation. So, you know, in 1998, we had this great peace agreement. And after that, there was a complete failure when it comes to implementation. And we know from looking at other peace agreements that peace agreements falter when it comes to implementation. And you need to have an implementation strategy and you need to have an implementation committee for a peace agreement to actually be effective. When it came to the Good Friday Agreement, there was no structure in place for how you actually implement it. And what's happened since is we've now developed a lot of political apathy and a lot of disillusionment rooted in the fact that people are still suffering from socioeconomic disadvantage. They haven't seen the peace dividend. They haven't seen the success they wanted. We don't have functioning politics. And of course, the structures that were put together under the Good Friday Agreement are now being misused and distorted as a way to block governance. Uh, so rather than saying that the Good Friday Agreement is no longer workable, I say, well, we need to go back and look at how we can review, reform, and implement what was actually envisioned in the first place. Because if we had things like a Bill of Rights, if we had the Civic Forum, if we have a functioning executive, if we have an anti-poverty strategy, these things really would you know, benefit all communities. Sam, can I say um, what Emma's just said? You were someone... And you're my friend, so tell everybody out there that Sam is my friend, but Sam has often said to me, we will never agree on the fact that, you know, uh, the United Ireland is something that, that, that you're in favour of. 
you will, you do, that's not for you. No. But let's caveat that. What Emil has said, one of your push points for me is that why don't we make the North work for everyone? And what she's actually hinting at is, is, is the failure to do that. So it is as much a failure of people from your community as it is uh, members of the nationalist community who are pursuing the ideal of a united Ireland. Oh, agreed. Um, and it's also the failure of the British and Irish governments because they, they didn't have the backbone or the will to follow up what they promised they would follow up. There was agreements made. There was, there was assurances given. And they haven't come through. And what they have done is, is left it to fester. Some have benefited, others haven't. And we all have benefited to a certain extent that the killing has stopped to the greater ex- extent. But then the caveat of that is the killing shouldn't be taking place in the first place. That, that being, not being targeted and blown up and shot should not be a benefit. It should be a right. So I'll take that off the table first. But the Good Friday Agreement, in its current context, especially after St Andrews, isn't recognisable. We, we need to go back and look at that again. And if, if we look at reform, we're probably going to get people who are going to say it's a renegotiation. And I don't believe that we'll get it over the line if it's a renegotiation. So we need to be careful how we do this. But the parties, we, all, we always talk about the spirit of the agreement, don't we? And we always get there. And it, it, it wasn't the spirit of the agreement. It was the spirit of the people who agreed the agreement. And I believe that's been hammered out. And we, we need to find people who are willing to sit and have a conversation like this one, but on a grander scale, and get, get the work done. And look at the people who are up in my community and in nationalist working class communities who have been left behind and who have been forgotten about. I mean, we're still sitting hang here on, Hang on, hang on. Can I push in and just say one thing? And again, Sam, I feel like I'm picking on you. And Emma, I promise I'll pick on you in a minute. But, um, but the facts remain that in the time period, those last 25 years, the nationalist community might be sitting around saying, well, actually, we've started to see, you know, uh, socioeconomic progression. We've got better jobs. We're going to colleges in, in better numbers. And it is the loyalist communities that have, have sort of said, you know, the, the jobs that were there, the manufacturing, all of that, it's, it's gone away. And, and that's a reason for disaffection. Absolutely. But it's also a failure of the people they vote for. Yeah. And it always has been. Um, and I, I don't want to sit here and say I don't think the nationalist working class people should prosper. They should. But we should all prosper at the same rate and we're not. And not, I don't want to drag anybody down to my level. I don't want anybody to suffer at the level that we are suffering. That is not the way forward. The way forward is Northern Ireland works for all. Now, how, how, how we see that is different. I see that if Northern Ireland works for all, then we're okay where we are. And you have lovely neighbours down the road. Yeah, and then that, that's exactly it. And I, I don't see a problem with... Uh, working relationship sounds too sterile, but a good relationship with our neighbours everywhere. You know, there, there's no need to sit and think that Northern Ireland sits apart from the rest. It doesn't. We need to integrate more with everybody. But my, my heart is with, it stays within the United Kingdom. Others won't be, and I, I don't have a problem with that either. No, no. Everybody's entitled to their aspirations, and everybody's entitled to pursue those aspirations. How you pursue them, we might get into difficulty with. Um... Because there always was a different choice than we made. There wasn't one way and only one way. Because um, we got to the place in 25 years ago where we could have got to in the 70s, and we weren't allowed to. Well, you know, we, we, what was? I'm not even going to use the phrase because it was kind of ableist about the, uh, you know, how they didn't get to a certain agreement when they should have gotten to it. But Emma, um, if I could ask you then, you have 
campaigned tirelessly, you've actually changed laws. You've, you know, successfully um, made it a, a human right now for, for people to attest their Irish identity in, in, in many ways from all the work you've done. But when you sit there and you see Stormont just... Uh, it's it's sat less days than it should have been in power. It, uh, you see this apathy of of political leaders, and then um, you know you hear people saying, "Well, there's no one trying." Yet here you are banging a drum day in day out. Yeah, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. There's a lot of people doing hard work in communities in Northern Ireland, doing all the hard graft, and they're not recognised for it. Um, I think on the the point around loyalist unionist communities. An Urquhart case, right? I mean, Ur case, you know, is predominantly seen as being about Irish identity, but it was it was actually about the right to be Irish or British or both. And during that case, I can't tell you how many people from a unionist background who had a British identity who came to me to ask me for help because their representatives would not take this up because to their representatives, whether they were the DUP or the UUP, this was some nationalist issue and they wanted no part of it. But that issue that I was encountering around immigration also impacted those from a unionist community as well, and they weren't being served by their own political representatives. So I think a lot of the disillusionment within loyalism, within unionism, does come down to failures from their political representatives. And I think that it would probably be a very different place if we had people like David Irvine still around, who, who we lost too soon. But I mean, the stuff around things not being delivered, it is frustrating. Um, you know, it is frustrating that we have no stormwind. It's frustrating that issues that have uh, been going on for decades have not been resolved, legacy being a really key one. We have a tendency to think of the Northern Ireland peace process as being this wonderful, perfect utopia. And all these young people are growing up now in this perfect place. They don't know anything about the conflict. They've got this great life, when in reality we have young people leaving in droves because we have division within our politics. We have segregated education. We have segregated housing. We still have paramilitaries. And this rose-tinted view of our peace process, I mean, it just doesn't add up. And I think we really need to start pushing back on that narrative and trying to get people to see that there's a lot of work here that needs to be done. And for some people, that does mean looking more towards the South. It means looking at a United Ireland as being a more viable option because reality is Northern Ireland is not working. Sam, just on the truth and reconciliation piece, I know it's something you've spoken about. You spoke about it on the first episode of the second season. The Shrapnel said it, it's, it's a plaster that needs to be, it actually needs to be ripped off because we need to look at the wound as it is and not pretend that it's just covered over by something. Can I, can I put something to you as someone who has been to the Bloody Sunday Museum in Derry and seen the, you know, the impact of the civil rights marches and the workers' rights marches and what was happening in Derry and how you can see living history in front of you? Your community hasn't got a space where it's done that. Outside, and I know you're trying to provide that with your own podcast, but your community hasn't got a space that's done that. How frustrating is that now, knowing that, that if you're going to be honest, we have to be honest about the warts and all. We have to talk about it in, in all the ugliness and its the, the difficulties and, and its layers. And I think, and I'm sorry to go on, but I think it was Gareth who said, you know, people might find it difficult to understand that some of the perpetrators of violence in their own ways have been victims of violence in other ways. And it is absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally know of an ex-loyalist prisoner um, who, as, a, as an 18-year-old man, was present at, at the, the Balmoral showroom bombings on the Shankle, um, climbed into the rubble and was pulling 
rubble out and found the body of a baby. After that, he, he joined an organization and that took him off down a, a different road and he ended up serving quite some time in jail. So was he evil or was he a victim of the troubles? And this is the question we need to be asking. I mean, he, he had a normal trade and a normal family and a normal life. And due to the actions of a other person, his life took a different turn. But the person who planted that bomb probably had a similar story of some description, was probably brutalized by the British Army or, or had somebody I, I, murdered. I, I, was, I, I was walking the streets of Derry and the person I was, was walking with, Martin was with me, stopped me and said, this is where my father was killed. Yeah, and, and that, uh, we, what, we did, what we developed was a circle of trauma and a circle of, of violence. It was visited on some people and other people took retribution and the retribution came and the tit-for-tats carried on. So when we look at victims and we look at where this goes... It's, it's a very messy sort of picture, but we need to pick our way through it. We need to deal with it in some shape or form. The legacy bill at the minute that the British government are trying to shove through is supported by nobody in Northern Ireland, and that should give you an indication of how actually bad it is, but no side will support it. Um, so we're, we're looking at legacy, again, 25 years too late, in my opinion. We should have been sorted out before we did anything with a Good Friday Agreement, but they needed to get it over the line. So, somebody set a deadline, and it would look bad in certain politicians if they didn't get it across the line. So things were said and things were done, but we didn't deal with victims. We didn't deal with a, we didn't even deal with a process to look at victims going down the line. It was one of those things that was left to the side, and hopefully nobody would mention it, you know, the elephant in the room. And we, we need to be looking at victims in a light that we take each individual case in an empathetic way because what is a victim? Is it the person who was shot and blown up? Is it the person whose father was taken away from him? Was it, and then that taken away, I mean, Sam, killed you, you, or, or sorry to go there, but you, you, you've witnessed. Yeah. You, you've been on the scene where bombs exploded. You've yes. lost friends. Yes. In your, in, in your vicinity while you were there. Yes. So I can't put myself in your shoes. I can't. I can understand the anger and the frustration that people have in that situation. Um, I was lucky that I had, well, I had a strong mother for a start who made sure that I stayed on, on, on the, the good path, um, that I used my head. And <laughs> you're sitting in Dublin. Well, I, know, I don't know if you're on the good path. Well, it may be slightly better than 10 years in criminal jail. So <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's touch and go. But there were, there were people who, who fell through the cracks at that point. And I, and, that's why we can do the podcast the way we do it is because I can see it from both sides. I don't see it as, I didn't see it as a, a nationalist attack on a loyalist area the day of the Shankill bomb. Evil came to see my village as I seen it. Evil came to my town and evil took a lot of friends away from me. And over the years we lost quite a few friends and relatives, but that wasn't just me. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware that there are a lot of families. I mean, it'd be harder to find a family in Northern Ireland not touched by the troubles in some shape or form. Because although it's a population of just under two million and it's six counties, it has a population less than London. You know, we were small, we're a city spread out, but everybody knows everybody. And in some shape or form, you will find somebody who's bumped into somebody else. But in that case, everybody has a story to tell. If you go into the Shankle and say the Shankle bomb and where were you, everybody has a story to tell you about where they were that day and how they should have been there and what they normally would have been doing. They all have it. But they all have the trauma that goes with that, and they all have the guilt that goes with that because they didn't die in it. You know, they they didn't go to the fish shop that day. They, they they always did, but for that day they didn't. So they carry guilt for certain things as well. It it really is a mess that we need to sort out. 
But 25 years later, we should have at least started into this, and we haven't. And Emma, um, as someone who has, and again, <laughs> I share your view. I think we, I do, I think we're progressing at some stage towards a border pole. I think that's where we're, we're, we're heading. That's the direction of travel. And again, I respect Sam's view on this, but all of the preparation work that, you know, organizations like Ireland's Future are doing in the legacy issues, are we doing enough from that perspective? No, we're definitely not doing enough. Um, the legacy bill that's going through is absolutely horrendous. It's not compatible at all with the ECHR and um, is going to set back reconciliation in Northern Ireland quite considerably, even if it does get, you know, rolled back by Labour if they get in in the next general election. But the stuff around constitutional change, I mean, I am of the belief that we are on a path towards having a border poll, most likely within the next 10 years. I mean, if you look back over the last few years since Brexit, the normalization of these conversations, how often we talk about constitutional change, how often the word border poll is being talked about. It's on primetime programs. It's on the airways. We have conferences. We had one there in October by Ireland's future that had leaders from, you know, most of the of the nationalist parties across the island of Ireland and, and many political leaders, which in itself is a statement of intent. You have these conversations growing, and I think that when you start to see that kind of shift and change within society, it tends to continue to its natural conclusion, which will be a border poll. Now, the work involved in trying to prepare that vote is enormous because you have two widely divergent jurisdictions. There's been so much divergence. Even if you look at an area such as education, the two education systems, north and south, have diverged significantly over the last 100 years. How are you going to reconcile that education system? How are you going to reconcile things like policing and justice? How are you going to reconcile the healthcare service, housing? What's going to happen to the civil service? What's going to happen to pensions? What color are the post box is going to be? What are we going to do about road signs? Or is everyone going to have to learn Irish language? Does everybody accept the Divine Comedy's indie disco as the national anthem? Are we going to have Tato, Northern Tato or Free Tato? I mean, this is going to be a controversial <laughs> topic. There's the line of the night, folks. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's, it's a really good point because there's, there's so much that we can talk about, but the ultimate thing is Sam doesn't actually want to get to that conversation. He wants to get to the conversation of how do we resurrect the idea of, and let's, let's call a spade a spade here, Sam, actually, resurrect is the wrong word. How do we give life to a Northern Ireland that is not based on um, making sure we, we, it will always be dominated by one side rather than the other? Yeah, I mean, the only way Northern Ireland is going to work is if everybody prospers. Simple mathematics will tell you that at some point, this is where it gets silly. <laughs> I'm going to say the nationalist population will be the majority. That's assuming that everybody in the nationalist population will vote for United Ireland. That's just, it's not as clear as that. The same way that not every... No, no, you, how, did you, how did you vote for Brexit, Sam? I voted to remain. So, so, yeah. so there you go. So the, the, the idea was that a majority of yeah, yeah. this community voted, but obviously that's not the case. But my no. point being still that at the foundation of the state, it was built in such a way as they didn't think you'd have to deal with this question. And now the question no. is a real life topic. I mean, if we're going back to Carson and Craig and the gerrymandering of the, of the, the six counties instead of the nine counties to ensure a unionist majority... They did that in the hope that it would stay that way, but it was never going to stay that way for various reasons. And I hate the idea that somebody will say that the Catholic families have bigger families. Both my mum and dad's families were huge, you know. Mm. It, it made no difference in the working class areas. Um, 
But at some point, the numbers, if you're looking to look at orange and green as a, as a, a dividing line, will be against my community's balance. So the only way to stay within the United Kingdom is to convince people from the green side, oh, fuck, I hate this, to vote to stay within the United Kingdom. And the only way to do that is to sell them it on, a, on the promise that everybody prospers. So that, that's what we need to do. We need to sell the union as an entity if we want to stay within the United Kingdom. So and the same uh, goes for Ireland. Uh, I, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, but here's the challenge then, Emma, to, to, to you. How does people in the south, or particularly the southern government, Sam is right. We have, I, in my 15 seconds of fame, one part that didn't come up on the Clareborn thing that wasn't in the video was when they said, you know, Sinn Féin were getting towards the, to the Good Friday Agreement. And I, being me, shouted from the audience, so is the Irish government. Because the Irish government has done nothing in many ways other than having, you know, some of it's been used actually, in, in fact, to make political capital against Sinn Féin. It's been used to sort of say, look, you know, let's have these people here who don't like Sinn Féin into the doll every few weeks to, to, to build it that way. I'm not defending Sinn Féin. I'm saying it's, it's an unusual t- tactic unless you look at it from a political point of view. So how the hell do we get the actual Irish government to be serious about it? Because to my, to my mind right now, they don't really have an appetite for it. Yeah, I mean, I think the Irish government really is dropping the ball here because the thing is, is that whenever these kind of movements start to take shape, they can go quite fast. And if that happens, we're not in any position to win a border poll because if people don't know what's going to happen to their pensions, don't know what's going to happen to the NHS, don't know what's going to happen with uh, the economy, then they're not going to vote for it. It's as simple as that. There's a, a, an amazingly positive argument to be won. And I think that really one of the biggest selling points is going to be a return to the European Union because, you know, we're talking here about green and orange, but let's not forget Northern Ireland is three communities and there is a very large community growing there now that do not see themselves as unionist or nationalist. Many of them are progressive. Many are pro-European. Many would maybe have voted against Brexit. A great many probably actually didn't vote at all because they're so disenfranchised and disillusioned from politics in Northern Ireland. But as we saw with the Good Friday Agreement, a lot of people who don't typically vote will come out to vote. I think it was about 180,000 of typical non-voters cast a ballot for the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So There's a lot of people to be sold, but there's no work being done in the preparation. And obviously, the Irish government does have a responsibility here. It is a constitutional aspiration to reunite this island. And it is going to require significant resources and significant work that, in my view, will actually take years to really prepare. And I think that it's foolish of the government not to be doing that preparation now. And often, an argument you hear against it is, oh, well, it will... It will cause division. It'll, or it'll, and be, and uh, it'll cost us money, by the way, is well, this other myth, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's, um, what's the word, divisive. Mm. Okay, they've used this language. All three of the coalition party leaders have used that term divisive to talk about constitutional change. And it really irks me because every referendum by its very nature is divisive. It's yes and it's no. That's not a bad thing. That's democracy. And we already have groups in Northern Ireland who are getting together now for a pro-Northern Ireland, pro-UK campaign. We have Uniting UK. We have Together UK. These are groups that are being formulated to start a campaign to remain as part of the UK. And I don't know how they're going to succeed in that because when you look at things like the state of the NHS, which will be one of their primary arguments, it's a pretty weak argument considering the amount of people dying on waiting lists. It's actually worse because the alternative now is when you see one of the things... Sam put to me previously is that 
you know, well, the next government might be different, and it, it seems the next government is just t- Tory light. You know, it's yeah. I ran a Twitter poll on that the other day, and, and overwhelmingly, it is Tory light. Um, I have no faith in the, in the current leadership, the Labour part, Labour Party either. I don't see where that goes. But again, my loyalty is not to a sitting party in Westminster; it's to that unity of four countries uh, working together in a, in a partnership. When when we discuss. And, and Emma's made the point, the Irish government haven't done anything for this, so long may it continue as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> because they're doing the work for us. Um, but again... Can, can I can I be really bold and, and then push in and say, they, one of the issues, Sam, we're in a room with people who listen to our podcasts, right? So they're going to be of a certain political persuasion. They're going to believe in certain in human rights shouldn't be, it should be actual just set in stone, we shouldn't have to campaign for them. I'm always reminded of people who, when we when we were the first country to, to pass a referendum for gay marriage, some of my gay friends said, it's a pity we had to ask, but it's great that we got the result we wanted. You live in a country, I'm going to say loosely, a statelet, or whatever the term we're searching for here now is, where all of those rights are actually repressed on the basis of well, actually, the big fear is if we if we if we give up a ghost on some of these things, it, 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 we have we still have to vote for the guy who believe, who puts forward this, frankly, bullshit when it comes to some of the the aspects of of you know the rights of people to have uh, reproductive choices, the rights of LGBT communities to express themselves and, and live their their full lives. It's very hard to to, to to tally that with even a United Ireland that uh, not not. Sorry, scrap the United Ireland in Northern Ireland that works for all. I think the only saving grace as far as our politicians go and those kind of characters is when it's when it's a referendum, it's a yes or no, we're not voting for those individuals because those individuals turn people off votes. Um and, and they continue to continue to do that. Um but <laughs> struggling for a way to say this to you without annoying the life out of you. Um <laughs> go for it. Yeah. I see nothing in the South that appeals to me. But I take, I'm, I'm meaning that in the fact that I don't see why I would switch from one to the other. Now, it will get to the point where it doesn't matter if I want to switch or not because so the numbers you, are beginning so you're to. you're wrong there because you've just said to me that will annoy me and it won't. It just sets me a challenge. Yeah. It says to me, why don't we have Slanchi No, but I, but I tempered it so it wouldn't annoy yeah, you. Yeah, okay. but why don't, we, why don't we have the, you know, so, so you're saying, you know, well, I won't give up my NHS. Emma has said the NHS is underperforming, but why would you jump into a system that's not even really willing to implement a single-tier system? Why would you jump into a system that says, well, you know, we're going to continue with... Uh, seeing homelessness go up by a couple of hundred every month <laughs> go up by a couple of hundred every month you know so so there's a lot of challenges here but hopefully and and Emma maybe this is a question for you uh, to have a have a think about hopefully in a broader united ireland or uh, whatever it's whatever we we end up with we can take the best of everything i think so and this what this is what appeals to me about the conversation actually because it fundamentally disrupts the status quo because you have two different legal jurisdictions that then become one state and that's going to require significant changes to both uh, you know there is definitely a a thinking within some circles in the republic that a united Ireland means that they're just going to 
you know, just to Northern Ireland just going to become part of, of the current state as it is, and there's going to be no changes. And personally, I think that's completely for the birds, uh, because there would have to be changes. You're going to have to look at the education system, the healthcare model, all of those different things, governance and how that works. And I think that when it comes to crunch time, there will have to be a very strong vision and plan as to what a United Ireland would look like. If you take the format of the Good Friday Agreement where they put together this document, it was sent out to every electorate so they could look over it and make a, con- you know, a conscious decision over whether that was the best thing for them. You know, If you look at that process versus Brexit, you can see which one of those two is really most appealing. So if you follow that process, you need to create a vision that people can buy into, which means you have to look at things like how do we create a free at the point of access health service that's better than the current one we have? How do we make an all island education system that's better than the current one we have? And can we take best practice from the north and from the south and create something better? And I think when you have to have those conversations, inevitably it opens up the possibility for making something better than you have. I think that all sounds great to me. I wonder what it sounds like to you, Sam. Um, utopian. It sounds like we're going to live in a different world where everything is equal and it's all provided for. I mean, we're basically putting this argument down to our shit show is less, worse, or better than your <laughs> shit show. I mean, that's where we're going. So the two systems need to be reformed before, before we even get to a balanced decision on this. And it's going to be one of those ones which, depending on the person's circumstances, what appeals to them the best. I mean, what we haven't talked about is policing. No, 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 it's not that we haven't. We haven't avoided it. It's just a simple thing when you think, so if you go policing, you have to also talk about, like the North is technically a member of NATO right now. Yeah. um, I mean, all of that becomes, all of that has to come on the agenda. All of that needs to be discussed. Um, Are are the guards prepared for what might come? No, but like the... I started this evening talking about my late colleague, Dr. Yeah. Vicky Conway, and she will tell you how the guards mapped themselves onto the RIC. They literally, you know, the RIC fell, and the week after, the guard, went in and said, well, we'll basically adopt much, almost all of their policies and, and map them onto what we're going to do. So, th- like, this, it's not without precedent, but it's absolutely without, uh, it's not something that, I would sit well with me. I, I, I want to see a lot more changes. I don't like police walking around armed, but you have police walking around yes. armed, and we don't. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the fundamental changes that need to happen on the ground are what we need to talk about first. Um, then we need to talk about how it's going to be funded. Um, because week on week, I, I read your timeline. Our, our tax haven uh, yeah, can pay for anything. Yeah, I mean... I mean, one report says you're in the top five richest countries in the world, and the next report says you're the highest homeless rate in the world. Yeah. So, depending on what report you read, it depends on where, where the Republic of Ireland sits in those leagues. So, I don't know. I don't really think they've done the work because they don't want to do the work. I, I, I agree with you. I want. Can we just try and end on a little bit of a light note, okay? So, there's there's a lot of people sitting here now. Uh, can I get a show of hands? Many people have, um, can, in their friends, say that one of, one of their friends is a loyalist. So I'm looking to see. Anybody raise a hand? Mm, okay. so, so, almost four of you. But... <laughs> <laughs> but I just find... Don't, don't be afraid. Put your hands up. Come on. <laughs> but... but yeah, but I'm just like, cause I, I, I recall, Sam, um, that the, the, when we've, we've had these conversations before, 
we're not having enough of them. And 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 so first of all, I suppose on a, on a, on a, on, a, on a personal note, thank you for continuing to come down. The last time you came down to Ballymun, they were taking pictures of you were like a, a museum specimen. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There were people going, that, that's a loyalist. <laughs> the, the lesser spotted prod, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and we had nothing but fun, but you. But that was the truth. So I'm going to also. Here's a here's a strange one for both of you, Emma. The um, do you remember the the, the the gay wedding cake? Do you remember the big argument about the gay wedding cake? So, so, so we had this. Someone didn't want to make a cake for a gay couple, a gay wedding, and they didn't want to do it. And we went through the courts, and then where was the European Court of Justice in the end? Ultimately, um, found in favour of the the bakers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but we all boycotted them after that. So. <laughs> but 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 their sales went up in Balamina, So take from that what you want. <laughs> So, so you know if you're a homophobe where to get your cake but um, but but there was an interesting thing that happened in the last couple of weeks that most people didn't pick up on was uh, the Supreme Court in, in, in the US said that and this is what's really funny because the reporting was wrong they said a person said they didn't want to make a website for a gay wedding so you know when someone put, sets up a website saying myself and Emma are getting married here's our guest list here's our you know, here's what we'd like as gifts and stuff. And they said, but the person who made websites had never been asked to make a gay website. It was a pure hypothetical. And yet the Supreme Court decided to wander, wade into this argument that was hypothetical and make a political decision on something that was... When we open the door, and I'm sorry, Sam, to make, to make fun, when we do all that sort of stuff now in a, in a country that has voted for a referendum to legalize same-sex marriage, you cannot, you cannot discriminate on, on the grounds of equality and all the rest of it. Where, where are we going now in terms of, in, in terms of the, the community, the loyalist community? And I'm, when I say that in the smallest amount, there's a, there's not, there's not many, but the really hardcore loyalist community who simply think, that's just wrong. We can't have that. Can't have gay people. You can't have gay marriage. You can't have, um, you, you know, we, we don't want, we, we don't. I would say that is not as strong in, in that small loyalist circle as you think. You probably find that would be in this, not the softer loyalist, but the, the more refined Christian unionist sort of conservative circles. So you, hmm. you will not, loyalism is, is a bit more progressive than that. You know, we, at a PUP conference in '94, um, the party put forward a policy on on gay rights and marriage. But they've been wiped marriage. out electorally. Yeah, but that was the voice of loyalism. So when we look at you look at the loyalist community, everybody thinks automatically they're they're, they're the right wing fanatics against everything, but they're not. You know, so that's one of those myths that you need to dispel. Mm. Are there homophobes within the loyalist community? Probably. You know, same it, everywhere. Yeah, but it's not. It's not sort of. A prerequisite of being a hardline but loyalist. But Sam, they are voting for the DUP. Yes. And the DUP's record is absolutely oh. atrocious. Oh, like oh, some okay. of the stuff they have said yeah. and the attacks they've made but, on that community are, are, are serious and, and they're being voted for. You're voted as in. aware of this as I am. People don't vote on policies. They mean, putting out leaflets with, with their policies on it is a waste of fucking time. Put out a leaflet with a flag on it and that's all you need to do when it comes to election time. You know, we, we don't vote for what we want. We vote for what we don't want. And we don't want the Shinners. We don't want, we don't want the SDLP. So we must vote for the unionists. And we vote down the line unionists because every, every unionist must get a vote to ensure we keep them inside. So we don't vote on the policies. I mean, 
Can anybody tell me what the DUP's policy is in education? Can anybody tell me what the Ulster Unit says on Something the environment? Something about dinosaurs and... Um, but nobody knows, because nobody, nobody reads that far down the line. It's like, that's it. There's a union jack, vote there, axe. Next one, axe. Next one, down. So, so ultimately, um, we're still, in your mind, uh, what, a decade away? We, we haven't reached the point where we actually vote on policies and proper grown-up politics. And, and yet I think we could be less than five years away. Emma, what do you think? I think five years is not crazy. Yeah, I think definitely within ten, five years maybe. I think this idea of people in Northern Ireland voting on policy and us being able to break the cycle of dysfunctional green and orange politics is never going to happen unless the institutions are reformed. And we talked about it a little bit earlier, and Sam, you had mentioned renegotiation. Now, it is important to point out that there is a review mechanism within the Good Friday Agreement. It does not require renegotiation. It actually is a part of the agreement itself to review it. Doing that is something that should naturally be done. And the thing about you know mandatory power sharing um, governments is they usually have a sunset clause because they're not intended to last forever. They're actually intended to stabilize governance within a place and then you move on. So this situation that we have where it's gone on now for 25 years, it's overstayed its welcome, it needs to be scrapped. And only when you do that and you remove things like forced designations where our politicians have to say either unionist or nationalist or other, once you remove that, the electorate can then open up to voting differently as well. But if that doesn't happen, which I don't think it will, uh, realistically, people are never going to vote on policy issues and we're going to be finding ourselves going into the booths to vote on a United Ireland far long before we actually have normal politics in Northern Ireland. And I, th- I think one of the things that's been left out of the Good Friday Agreement that we both agree on is a civic forum because that would give the people the chance to hold the, the politicians to account and there's a reason why it's not enforced because they don't want to be held to account. Well, they get held to account every four years and then they get the flags out and away we go again. We go around in the circle but... Had we have a civic forum of some description, we could be holding these people to account on a daily basis. And before the Good Friday Agreement, we had a civic forum. We had that discussion. And it was on that basis that we moved forward through the peace negotiations. So it's the power of the people on the ground that needs, needs to happen. And again, those forums were the, the hotbed for the smaller parties. And that's where people got involved. I mean, people like Eddie Kenner, who's been on the Shrapnel podcast, that's where he cut his teeth politically. He went in there and he argued points and then came to the PUP and the PUP then started to put together this, this formation of these, those, these minds, the minds that we always talk about, Irvine and Hutchison, Smith and so on. But this, the forum is probably the best way forward at this stage because if we can't ask those people we pay a large sum of money to to do their job, then we'll do it for them again. Well, it is worth just, if I can, adding that, and Sam knows this already, um, I'm actually working with 16 other organizations to recreate the Civic Forum. You're running it, basically. Uh, Well, I don't want to say that, but yeah, I have a lot of support. But here's the thing about the context, the political context in Northern Ireland. We're having to put together a civic society-led civic forum because we have waited over 20 years for political leaders to give us what they agreed to in the Good Friday Agreement, and they have failed to do so because they don't want to have this kind of accountability. And because of the nature of politics, we can't use the term civic forum when we talk about this project because it's too politicized, too contentious. And I am trying to get through the next 18 months of doing this project successfully across Northern Ireland and border areas to just not have the DUP attack it. 
That is my plan. If I can have them just not attack it, just they don't have to agree with it, but if they cannot come after us, that would be wonderful. And that's the goal that we're trying to achieve. And we've had to tweak language then. We can't say civic forum. We're doing a citizens assembly essentially, but we can't use the term citizens assembly because again, that's now too attached to Sinn Fein. So we have to call it a deliberative gathering. And this is the context that civic society operates in. This is deliberate gathering, by the way, folks. You're all part of it. Listen, I'll give the last word to Sam. Yeah, thanks very much, coming, lads. Thanks for coming. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Lads, no, but seriously, can we all put our hands together for Sam McElwain and Emma D'Souza? Um, Really, really, really. And, And believe it or not, they're great friends. They're great friends. Thanks, folks. We'll be back in a few. We'll be back in a few. Everybody, go get a drink. And um, I, I, I see Meryl Streak is sitting at the back there. I was hoping he'd come down and scream death to the landlord. But we we'll leave you off, Meryl. You enjoy your, your <laughs> you enjoy your classic Thanks, pal.